Hi, everyone. I'm Lindsay Gray with Vecina and the Inadmissible Podcast. We've talked on some episodes lately about how our immigration system often treats families and individuals seeking safety in our country differently based on where they're from. We spoke on our last episode, Left Behind, about how Afghans and Ukrainians seeking emergency entry into the United States have seen very different results. Since the publication of that episode, we've obtained even more information about the data behind those assertions. We now know that of all requests filed by Ukrainians under a special U.S. program, about 70% of the applications have been approved. Compare that to the request by Afghans to urgently enter the U.S., where only 0.19% of applications filed have been approved. That's 0.19%, not 19% or 1.9%, 0.19. To help us parse through this, I'm here today with Layla Ayub, an attorney with Project Anar. Hi, Layla. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lindsay. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Project Anar? Yeah. Um, so thank you for having us on. Um, I am Afghan myself. Um, last summer with other Afghan friends, um, our friends who are from allied communities who are also immigration lawyers, uh, we came together as an emergency response effort to um, immediately to assist our own family members who we were trying to get out. Um, and we qu quickly learned that the way that other lawyers, that um, members of Congress were telling people to, to try and really the only pathway available to most folks who didn't qualify for anything else was humanitarian parole. So we formed um, sort of an ad hoc um, community-led legal services project uh, to assist our community members with filing these applications really quickly. Um, and we, um, in the year since, have been continuing to assist folks um, and also really focused on making sure that the Afghans who have filed for humanitarian parole in an effort to reach the United States are not forgotten. And can you tell us really briefly just what is humanitarian parole? Yeah, so humanitarian parole um, is a potentially an urgent, um, fast way for someone to get to the United States. Uh, that discretion lies with DHS, and it's really broad and can be generously used. It's historically been used to bring people here as refugees um, when they can't access that pathway any other way. Um, and then once someone has that permission to get to the U.S. through parole, they can pursue something else once they're here. And so we're now about one year after the fall of Kabul. How's that going with those humanitarian parole applications? Yeah, so um, because so many Afghans were in this position where they became extremely vulnerable um, and they were looking for a pathway to refuge to reuniting with their families. Uh, a lot of people tried this um, and there were um, more than 60,000 applications that were filed by Afghans over the last year. And unfortunately, we have only seen 123 
complete approvals through the I-131 um, humanitarian parole application. There's other ways that people can seek humanitarian parole. So we've heard different numbers from the government, but there have only been 123 approvals. And that's uh, of a very small proportion uh, that have actually been processed. Um, so most Afghans, they're stuck. They are stuck waiting. They have virtually no other countries that they can access. Um, and the U.S. government has not explained why it's treating these applications this way. So I just want to get clear for a minute about, so you said over 60,000 applications had been filed and 123 have been approved. Yes, so um, there have been, you know, there's varying varying figures that we've heard from the government, but there have been very few applications that have actually been fully processed, and that number is somewhere around 8,000 that have actually been processed, um, and of those, there have only been 123 approvals. So of 60,000 that have been filed, 8,000 have been processed and 123 have been approved. So we're looking at more than 52,000 that are still waiting to be processed. Is that right? Yeah, there's, um, you know, we got this information um, through a FOIA request that was filed by Reveal, which is um, an investigative podcast. And those reporters were able to get data from the government through their FOIA request. Um, and it told us a lot that we hadn't heard from the government otherwise. While we knew from our experience in the last year and from government statements that these applications were not getting processed, and when they were, they were mostly getting denied, um, we, we didn't have this full picture. So now from this data, we know that uh, 66,000 applications were filed. It looks like 18,000 of those were never even processed. They were rejected from the lockbox. So that means those people just got their application sent back to them. Um, they might have tried to file again. They might not have been able to try to file again. We really don't know what happened with all of those. Um, but that means 66,000 times that people attempted to access this pathway. So, and and of those 66,000 applications, I mean, I don't know if the data tells you this, but do we know sort of when the bulk of those were filed? Were they filed in the fall, in the spring? Yeah, so we do know that people were filing these applications mostly in the fall between August, um, July, August, September, October, uh, and for, for those of us who are assisting people with these applications, you know, we, we saw that things changed after August, that the government stopped um, processing them as quickly and things were really slowed down and we started to get concerned. Um, in September, uh, we, we really noticed that they were being filed slowly and um, folks started advocating for the government to move more quickly on these applications and to maintain a pathway for Afghans. Um, 
that's when our organization filed um, or sent a letter to the government um, with a coalition of um, more than 100 other organizations at that time um, in October, I, I believe it was. And we asked the government to make this process better, to actually process the applications, to give people a pathway to get here through parole because it is potentially fast. Um, and then it wasn't until November that the government actually updated people about how they were adjudicating these applications. So in November, there was like a community stakeholder meeting by USCIS where they told people that they were treating these applications um, at a really high threshold, that really it's it's it would be impossible for people to meet the type of evidence that um, the U.S. government was asking of folks, especially because they applied so quickly in emergency circumstances. They might not have even had um, all of the documents that um, that they would need because of their circumstances, because they're in hiding and all these things. Um, and yeah, so they filed without the knowledge of how the government was going to be treating their applications. There also wasn't a reason for the government to treat them that way because they could be generously using their parole authority and they could be approving them. Yeah, so speaking of generously using their parole authority, um, let's switch gears now. And actually, I want to touch on one thing before we switch switch gears. There is a filing fee for Afghan, well, any type of, if you file a, a humanitarian parole petition via the I-131, which is the specific form that I think you referred to a minute ago, you can apply for a fee waiver request, but there's a filing fee. So I think this data also reveals how much the U.S. government has collected in filing fees from Afghan humanitarian parole petitions. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so that's that's obviously a big part of this. And that's something that we have been asking for months and we didn't get an answer to until we saw the data from this FOIA request. Uh, the U.S. government has collected $20 million nearly in filing fees from Afghans for these applications which, yeah, it really puts into context that 0.19 approval number. Um, you know, for, for us, we, um, we see this as just another way that, that this government has stolen from Afghans. Um, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other aspects of how they're treating Afghans and this is just one piece of it. And, um, it's, yeah, it's something that we have been asking for too for this entire year is for the fees to be waived. Um, but we were willing to come together and assist each other to, to meet this barrier. We fundraised, so many other people fundraised. Our whole community in the U.S. was um, getting our friends, our coworkers, everyone to help us to pay for these fees. And people were willing to do it because we thought it might work. Um, but that's not what's happened. And one other thing I want to touch on. So you were saying that you were mentioning just a moment ago, a few things that you were asking the government for. And one thing was a, a fee waiver, sort of a blanket fee waiver. Mm -hmm. Once this threshold came out in November, 
y'all also started asking for a, a special parole program for Afghans, right? Where they had, yeah. there was sort of a separate pathway specific to Afghans because of our relationship with the, with Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right? Can you tell us a little bit about how that went? Yeah. And, and I'll mention that, you know, legal advocates had pointed to the need for a parole pathway for Afghans for even long before this, because the refugee process, the refugee system is so eroded, we knew parole would need to be a complementary pathway um, in, in an urgent situation like this one. And so we mentioned it in our first letter to the government. And then again, in, um, in later in the fall, we sent along another letter that asked for a parole program for Afghans. And then again in February, um, it was a letter led by Human Rights First and LIRS. And that was entirely about requesting a parole program for Afghans. And it laid out how this is there's there's historic precedent for this, for utilizing parole authority to bring large populations of refugees, especially when there is that history of military involvement in that country. Um, and, you know, we were pointing to historical precedent for months. Uh, and then in the spring, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we saw the U.S. government response and they actually quickly, um, and like remarkably put together an online portal, um, for Ukrainians to access parole, to be able to find safety in the U.S., And it showed us that everything that we had been asking for and that we were told couldn't happen, could happen, which is what we we knew it could happen. But now we know that not only can it happen, it can happen quickly and efficiently um, and without fees, without having to prove why you deserve safety. Because obviously, you know, other things that the U.S. government has done with regards to Afghans makes it clear that they recognize Afghans can't be returned to Afghanistan. That's why they did TPS. Um, so they, they recognize the conditions in Afghanistan, but um, it, it does not match up with how they're treating these parole applications. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think the crux of this episode is, you know, is it, is it really true that Afghans are being treated so differently from Ukrainians. And, you know, as we've discussed, we all sort of had an inkling that the data as it relates to Afghan humanitarian parole applications was disparate compared to parole applications from Ukrainians. But now we sort of know. So for Afghans, we have 66,000 roughly applications that have been filed, 123,000 that have been approved, and around 52-ish plus thousand that are still hanging out. And most of these applications were filed last fall. So then we go flash forward to the spring. Russia invades Ukraine. The U.S. stands up a quick parole program specific for Ukrainians, which is something that Afghan advocates had been requesting for months. There's no filing fee. There's uh, no need to prove sort of why you merit a grant of humanitarian parole. And are the applications being processed faster? Tell us about the the data and also like not just processing time, but how many have been filed and how many have been approved? 
Yeah. Um, so this Ukrainian program, it's, it's amazing. It, uh, especially because we know like as lawyers, USCIS doesn't do things online, doesn't do things these quickly, this quickly. Um, and these people needed this program. Um, so it's, something that can be used as a model for other communities and people did quickly use it there i believe the latest numbers from public statements say that um around 97,000 applications have been filed through this portal and 68,000 have been approved so it's close to a 70% approval rate right now um i'm not positive how many of those have actually been processed but it shows that a lot have have been processed so that approval rate um is reflective of people who have actually been able to complete that process and then be able to come here um and those applications get processed within a matter of a few weeks um it's it's all online it it doesn't require proving all these other things something else that that sticks out to us is that this program it promotes family unity while, um, you know, the traditional humanitarian parole application process, each application form and fee is separate and it's per person, um, which it's, it's just not reflective of how people migrate. They, they apply as families, they um, need to stick together. And, you know, we've seen uh, we've seen people within the same family for like Afghans that we've assisted get different decisions because it's just so inefficient and inconsistent. So we've got a 70% approval rate for Ukrainians under their special parole program, around 68,000 grants as opposed to 123 grants for Afghans. It seems, you know, 68,000 out of 97,000, that a much higher percentage of them have been adjudicated after being filed in the spring, as opposed to the bulk of the Afghan humanitarian parole positions being filed in the fall and having, you know, 8,000 adjudicated out of, you know, 60 plus thousand. Um, So now that we have all of this data and we see this numerical factual disparity What's the ask? What's the demand? What's the advocacy? Yeah, I mean, we're asking, we're asking for this for our community. We're asking for that program to be the model and not the exception. Um, You know, we these numbers, like seeing them together, it gets people's attention, um, and we're hoping that it doesn't stop there. Um, I think. You know, we we haven't gotten a public explanation for why the government has not um, done this kind of program for Afghans yet. We know that they had to they had to figure out how to respond to the volume of Afghan applications they got, and they clearly were able to find a way to respond to the Ukrainian crisis by creating this program. And we're hoping that they they do this for for our community too. Um, so yeah, we're, we're hoping that people don't just stop at like noticing that disparity. Um, you know, we, in the spring, there was a lot of talk about like media disparities and this is the manifestation of 
those kinds of disparities. It, it's it's something that we see all the time in our immigration system. So um, we we need to actually push now for the government to to make sure that this program is not the exception and that everyone gets treated. That th this kind of treatment is the baseline for um, how how all of our communities are treated and that Afghans get a parole program. Um, I, yeah. How can people make that ask? What, what can people do to amplify, like you say, not only the disparity, but also what the request is? Because the request is not, well, don't do this for Ukrainians, right? The, right. The, the request is, this is amazing, I think is what you said earlier. And this should be a model for all communities in this situation. So tell us how we, how we can help. Yeah. So um, we, we need to hold the government accountable to explaining how they've been treating these Afghan applications, what they have been doing with all that money. They took $20 million. They shouldn't be just using that to figure out a way to deny all these applications. Um, so this is, again, something that the government already has the power to do. So we don't even need that much action. Really what we need to do is have folks, you know, reach out to their members of Congress and have their members of Congress hold the administration accountable to creating an Afghan parole program and to utilizing all of the other pathways that are already available to bring more Afghans here. Um, you know, the refugee processing is an option. We're not telling the government not to use that, but it's not moving fast enough right now. Um, to meet the need. So where uh, we have put together a toolkit, we put together a petition to also give, you know, community members a way to, to put themselves on the record as like being a witness to, to this injustice and um, have that reach the government. Uh, and yeah, keep, keep asking our members of Congress to hold the administration accountable um, you know, we continue to advocate directly with uh, with the government and um, everyone else, like bearing witness to this, putting out statements about how it's affected them, because there's so many people that have stepped up in the last year to to sign up to sponsor an Afghan, to pay for someone's fees. And um, it, it's really it's going to take all of us making sure that that the pressure stays on and that all of these people all of, all of those 60 something thousand that filed these applications that continue to file these applications um, that something is done for them. Layla, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you hopping on um, and thank you for all of your insight. Yeah. Thank you.